elders and their graciousness to allow us to to be away for a number of weeks on vacation. That was a refreshing time for us. It was enjoyable. We didn't go uh, very far at all. We, I had a long list to do at home, which was enjoyable. Uh, but it's, it's good to be back, back with you, back into the swing of things, and we're going to be back in Luke's gospel. I desired at the beginning of August, though, uh, having this time off, an extended time off, to, to read through the Bible. I really wanted to read through the entire Bible. I, I made it up to the Psalms. It's, there's a lot in there, just so you know. Uh, and, and the first quarter of the Bible. And, and what I noticed, and knowing that I was coming back to preach this, this passage in Luke 4, the temptation, but there's humans failing time and again as you start the scriptures right off the bat. Adam and Eve in the beginning, giving into temptation of the serpent. Cain killing his brother, the people building a tower, Abraham worrying that he's going to lose his wife, so he lies, Sarah abusing Hagar, Lot's wife turning back, and that's not even halfway through Genesis. And they all give in to temptation. They give in to their fears, and they fail to trust the Lord's promises. They, they question the goodness of God. From Adam in the garden to God's people in the wilderness, they, they fail when they're tempted. It's literally, as you read through, a record on repeat for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses leads the people, but then he's tempted to anger because the people complain and he strikes the rock. Samson has this incredible power, but Delilah, Delilah tempts him and, and he folds like a cheap suit. And David has this promise. And then he fails when he's tempted with Bathsheba when he should be at war. Solomon has this bright future, then he marries other women who take his heart away from the Lord. And over and over, we read of the human race failing, then enduring. And they, and they, can't, they can't put off these temptations. And, and, yet, and yet, I believe we barely scratch the surface of the struggle of temptation. C.S. Lewis said it well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means, and that's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like for an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it, he says. And Christ, because he's the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus is the only one to fully understand what temptation means. And he is in our example. If you came in this morning thinking we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus and he's going to be our example, I'm going to give you a few points to walk home and you're just going to battle like Jesus, you're wrong. That's not what the point is. He is in our example. He's our Savior. And that should be cemented clearly in our minds. This isn't a blueprint for how we should just battle the, the Satan and the devil. I mean, there's things for us to learn, but first and foremost, this is a, a passage, it's a declaration. There's only one. 
There's only one who could be tempted and not sin. And so we don't need an example to follow. We need a Savior. And so we pick up in Luke 4. If you haven't turned there, turn with me now to Luke chapter 4. In these chapters prior, we, we find out the Savior whose birth was announced by angels and celebrated by shepherds. And he's come into full view now. And Luke has taken three chapters to introduce us to this one. And we, and we saw four weeks ago his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist and beginning of his ministry. And his introduction ends in the end of chapter 3 with this long genealogy and triumphantly declared that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. And so we're going to look at the verse 13 verses here of Luke chapter 4. And here's the main idea I want you to take with you. So if you, maybe you don't take notes regularly, but th this is one thing I want you to get, okay? The main idea. And it should be on the screen at some point. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus overcomes Satan's temptations, demonstrating his obedience and faithfulness to the Father. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus overcomes Satan's temptations, demonstrating his obedience and faithfulness to the Father. Jesus, here relying on the Holy Spirit, overcomes the temptations and declares that there finally there will be one who can obey God in all things. And so there's going to be three temptations that we'll look over and I want you to think deeply about each one here because there's going to be application for you. So allow the, the Spirit to work in your heart and mind as you listen and, and, and hear what he has to say to you because there's going to be application as we look through these three points. The temptation of provision, the temptation of power, and the temptation of protection. So before we get into that, look at verse 1. And Jesus fully the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. What we see here is it wasn't a surprise attack by the devil. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus wasn't led into temptation because he was in some penalty box. Jesus had done nothing wrong. This was God bringing this temptation for his own purpose. He was led to the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted, and this was not an unloving thing by God. Jesus here is going to identify himself with his people. His people, as I said earlier, and as you read through the scriptures, had failed time and time and time again, and now Jesus comes. And the first Adam failed. So the second Adam had to succeed for us to be saved. And the consequences from Adam's failure was placed on us all. Paul says, he, he teaches us in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin he was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then Paul says, and for the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man. 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And he's, he's just painting a picture. He wants us to understand the plight that we're in because of Adam. And then he says here, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so in that passage, he's contrasting the first Adam in the garden and Jesus, the new Adam. And both Adam and Jesus were representatives. They were both tested. One failed, and as we'll see, one didn't. R.C. Sproul said, the work of Jesus Christ was more than an offering atonement for sins. He also had to fulfill all righteousness in order to merit the rewards of the covenant for himself and for those he represented. And for Jesus to be our Savior, he not only had to die for our sins, but he had to live a life of obedience that he would be our righteousness. And so with God's blessing and the Holy Spirit, filling him and leading him, Jesus enters the wilderness to fast for 40 days. We're unsure of these three temptations from the devil. They, they happened at the end or they happened during the whole time. We're, the scriptures doesn't say, but Satan was there. Satan's name means uh, Diabolus, and, and its name paints a picture of imaginations. It's, his name literally means to throw accusations across and we see that if you go back to the book of Job, right? In the early chapters of Job, he's, he's called the accuser, hurling accusations at Job. And so here, here we are. Here's the, here's the setting. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's by himself. The Spirit leads him there. And, and Satan comes, and Satan's there with Jesus. But Satan doesn't know the future. He doesn't know that his temptations with, with Jesus won't work. But you have to realize, up to this point, Satan is batting a thousand with humans. He's perfect. Every time he comes to tempt a human, he wins. So it always worked for him. I'm sure he comes to the wilderness, to Jesus, thinking, I'm going to accuse, I'm going to tempt, and I'm going to win. I mean, he overcame the first Adam in the garden. Should he not overcome the second Adam in the wilderness? And so he comes, I'm sure, with pride looking forward to his victory. Israel was tested in the wilderness. And how they respond, they descend into sinful grumbling, disbelief of God's promises. So will the second Adam succeed where the first failed? Will this one be faithful where Israel rebelled? Will, will Satan be able to derail God's plan to make for himself a people who will love him as holy sons and daughters? So he begins here in these temptations. The first one is the temptation of provision. He begins here in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and I just had to get a drink, so I, I most definitely wouldn't have lasted that long. He was human at this point, and he's hungry, and the devil, devil comes to test him. And this simple temptation to question the love and goodness uh, and provision of God the Father. He's tempting him to take into his own hands the supply of what he needs, which in this case is food. 
So food isn't bad. It, it's, it's not a sin to be hungry. But it's a sin to not trust in God and to try to live without trusting in him, to, to not trust in his provision for you. And, and he's literally tempting him to contradict everything that he's been doing in the fasting. His fasting is to drive home the fact that you're to rely on God. You're declaring that you're trusting in God alone and not yourself. And the devil comes along and says, hey boy, you need to eat. You looked famished. Where's your father now? I mean, if if God really loved you, Jesus, he, he would provide a meal for you. What kind of father is he? Not even willing to give you food. And so he says, here's what you should do, Jesus. You turn this stone into bread. I I know you can do it. Just say the word. You've got the power. I mean, Jesus later will turn a few loaves and a few fish into a gigantic meal for thousands of people, right? So, I mean, this is nothing for him. You know, you hear the temptation from Satan. Your father's not giving you what you need. He doesn't care about you anymore. Just turn the stone into bread and eat you got to care for yourself, Jesus. And do you see what the devil is doing here? He, he's, he's, he's questioning the speed of God's goodness to Jesus. Satan is tempting him as often as he tempts us to be impatient. To get ahead of God's timetable by meeting his own needs in his own way rather than waiting for God to provide. And every time we face a temptation to sin, to take something that isn't ours, this is playing out. If you go into work and try to manipulate your way to get a raise, you're not trusting God. When you date a person that you know doesn't love the Lord because you just want to get married, you're not trusting God. When you fudge a little on your tax return, you're not trusting God. And when we're saying that God hasn't provided for us what we need, we're going to take it for ourselves. You're succumbing to the temptation that Satan brings before Jesus here. You're saying, God isn't good, and he doesn't give me everything I need. But Jesus here, he holds fast to the Father. Look at his response in verse 4. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. This is significant here. Jesus is first quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, and Jesus is identifying himself as human. He's identifying himself with us. He says, man, man doesn't live by bread alone. And we need to understand that Jesus did not resist the temptations of Satan by the superior power of his deity, but in all the weakness of his humanity, relying on the Holy Spirit. And this is the same temptation in the which plagued God's people in their wilderness. To be dissatisfied with what God appoints as the means suitable for sustaining life. I mean, think about it. The life of the Israelites for those 40 years in the wilderness. Living off and receiving manna every day. Do you think it ever became mundane? The miracle of manna every morning? You know, mom and dad wake up, stoke the fire, send the kids out with the clay pot to go gather manna like they're going out to the garden to get green beans. 
They didn't do anything to get this. God just brings it every day. So easy to take it for granted. And they would gather what they needed for that day. And then they would gather twice as much on Friday because on the Sabbath, none would come. And then get this, but every other day, if you gathered too much, their manor would be filled with maggots and, and worms and it wouldn't last. They were gathered just enough, but not on Saturday. So when they gathered twice as much on Friday, they would wake up Saturday and it would be fine. It's what they needed. God provided exactly what they needed. And yet, like us, the people in the wilderness found a way to complain. We do the same thing. Some wake up with their spouse and complain that their spouse should change. They're not satisfied with the spouse that God gave. Some come, perhaps even you today, with the opportunity to come and worship. And it's different. It's weird with a plexiglass in front of you. And we complain because it's not what we want. And we think it just needs to go back. Some complain about the job that God graciously gave. Because it's not the right hours, or it's not the right fit, or it's not going well. I think we're more like the Israelites than we would like to admit. And if we're honest, this is an issue with our ability to patiently endure suffering. Jesus here refuses to take matters into his own hands. He entrusts himself to the Father's hands. The devil comes to tempt him to be impatient, to get ahead of God's timetable by meeting his own needs in his own way rather than waiting for God to provide. See, God would provide. God would bring angels. Luke's gospel doesn't say this, but Matthew's does. God God would bring angels to come and minister to him when this time of testing was done. But Jesus needed to trust. So friends, what is it right now in your life that you've found the opportunity to complain about instead of trusting God to provide? You know, it was God's word that assured Jesus of his place and who he should trust. He was dependent on God's word. And we see that so clearly in his earthly ministry. So how are we doing trusting in God's word for what we need? So that's the first temptation. Temptation of provision. Second, the temptation of power. Verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given, delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And this this is a political temptation for Jesus. He's offering him the chance to rule the world, to have power. And Luke gives us no indication that we should doubt this claim of Satan. And Revelation 13 makes it clear for us that the systems and the structures of this world, this fallen world, serve the purposes of the devil. He could give Jesus authority and their their glory to the nations, but it it would pale in comparison to what God would offer him. 
In John 12, 31, it's clear the devil was the ruler over this world, but only by God's permission. I mean, Satan even says that. You see it in his own words there in verse 6. For it has been delivered to me. It was handed over to the devil, but it's still under God's sovereign control. And in this temptation, it's, a, it's to accelerate the access to power by bypassing the path of suffering and service. To achieve power for power's sake, giving no thought to justice, to, to adapt a satanic means of attaining power by exploiting and dominating and crushing others. And Jesus could, could set up his kingdom now to make all things right against the powerful Roman Empire. All he had to do was worship the devil. I mean, think of the greatness of this earthly kingdom. It would have been far, far, by far the greatest kingdom this world has ever seen. Jesus allied with Satan. Together they would have dominated the world. They could crush any and all men that would try to usurp their authority. And in this, Satan is tempting Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad. To savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and fatigue as humans, and to take hold of power and prestige without the prospect of painful rejection. He is offering Jesus an independent sovereignty. He's offering Jesus a chance to be the thundering Messiah. It's this Messiah we think we want. We don't want gentle and lowly Jesus. We want mighty and fierce. We want anything but a suffering servant for a leader. So did Peter. Matthew 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And you know the story, right? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you're wrong. Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. You can't be gentle and lowly and suffer and die. You need to rule. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. See, Peter is tempting Jesus the same way Satan is tempting him here. Peter is acting more like his fleshly father than his heavenly father. See, he didn't want a suffering servant. He wanted a political leader who would crush the tyranny in Rome. Friends, are you tempted to that same power in this world? Are you tempted to believe that all we need is a strong political leader and this world will turn around? See, in essence, the devil is offering Jesus a chance for instant glory. But it would be a crown without a cross. Skip the suffering, Jesus. Go right to the throne. Go right to power. 
Jesus, you can have glory now without any suffering, no pain, no separation of friends, no more death, no more misery. Just go to the throne right now. And listen, friends, our entire salvation rests on Jesus' answer to this in verse 8. And Jesus says in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he goes back to Deuteronomy again. He's quoting one of God's commandments, the law that the man was given, man was given to live by. And he knew it was wrong to worship anyone except God. And that's all that mattered. Jesus would receive the crown that would be rightfully his, but would he wait? Would he suffer? He was called to wait. He was called to suffer. And so are we, friends. But we're, as humans, not good at waiting. We're not good at suffering. We want it now. We want it with ease. Because when we're waiting, we're prone to the temptation to doubt the goodness of God and for his purpose in our lives. Israel in, in the wilderness waited and they doubted and they distrusted God. But Jesus wouldn't fail. He would trust and obey. And we should note that he does model for us how to deal with temptation. There is something to learn here from us. See, Jesus shows us that it's better to suffer than to sin. So if you get anything from this sermon, listen and learn this. It is better to suffer than to sin. Whether that's your workplace or your neighborhood or in your marriage, it's better to suffer than to sin. Suffering can serve us. It helps us in our trust with God. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. Patiently suffering brings us closer to the Lord. Suffering is the Christian way. And as you're suffering, brothers and sisters, you're not by yourself. Jesus came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it means to be thirsty and hungry and despised and rejected and scorned and shamed and embarrassed and abandoned and misunderstood and falsely accused and suffocated and tortured and killed. He knows what it feels like to be lonely. He understands loneliness. You skip ahead in the story, his friends all abandon him. And they bail. I mean, even before then, he walks to the garden, knowing the burden that he's carrying, recognizing what's to come. And he goes and prays and he brings friends. And what do they do? Just stay and pray, and they stay and they sleep. They abandon him. They sleep while he. Sweats drops of blood. 
Friends, Jesus knows your suffering. And he's there with you. And we can only suffer well because we know he's with us. He's our friend. And the plan of God was for Jesus to suffer for our sins. The cross must come before the crown. See, Satan offers him a bypass, just skip Calvary, go straight to the throne. But that kingdom wouldn't remain. It was only God who was offering an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus here is refusing to become a lesser Messiah who could only rule over a a pale, dying, earthly kingdom. Jesus is rejecting Satan's desperate attempt to become Lord over him. Instead, Jesus is going to walk the path to the cross. Jesus could have had a kingdom with Satan, but he would have never solved the problem of sin. In order to do that, he would have to suffer and die. And this thought just rocked me this week. His goal, Jesus' goal, was not to gain a kingdom for himself, but to save his people. To save us. And to do that, he had to suffer and die. Jesus had his eye on his people. He had his eye on you and I, friends. When Jesus is, is, is denying Satan's attempt here, he's thinking of us. He knows what it will cost to save us. And he's willing to die for our sins. That's humbling to me. Well, we've seen the temptation to provision and to power. The last is the temptation of protection. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's like at this point, Satan catches on to what what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is quoting scripture, so Satan's like, I'm going to quote scripture. I, I think I can take him. He takes him to the highest point of the temple, which is located at the southeast corner of the temple complex, almost 500 feet above the Kidron Valley, and he opens his Bible to Psalm 91. Turn there. I know you all have a digital Bible. No, some of you have real ones. All right. Psalm 91. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here we have Satan quoting Scripture. Psalm 91, verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Did pretty good, right? But he he missed the verse. Did you see verse 13? 
And you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, and the serpent will, you will trample underfoot. Oops. He's not a good Bible student. Not reading the Bible in context. The serpent will be trampled under his foot. He will crush the head of the serpent. A selective reading by Satan here. He's trying to tempt him to do it. And can you imagine what, what it would have been like for Jesus to do this? To play this out. He goes up and he, he, he throws himself. He would have been the most popular person in the community seeing him fling himself off the top of the temple being rescued by angels. It would have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was with him. That God would bless his ministry. I mean, what a stunt this would be. But Jesus doing this would have put God the Father in a position of being compelled to preserve Jesus from harm. If Jesus would have acted on the devil's suggestion, it would have constituted the very opposite of a life of genuine faith. Because faith trusts God to provide protection and deliverance when they're needed. But for Jesus to act here means he would have forced the hand of God. It would have been an attempt to control God. To manipulate him. See, Jesus did all of this. Jesus did all the, the, the ability to battle temptation because the Spirit who filled him and led him in the wilderness. I mean, he's not, we, we shouldn't look at this as an example, but there's things here we should learn, we should understand about Jesus and how he, he interacts and he lives in this world. He uses and understands the word of God in its proper context. And how will we begin to resist temptation without the Bible and the Holy Spirit? If that's what Jesus relies on here. Friends, I know I say this a lot, and I'm not going to get tired of saying this, but it should be normal that we read the Bible. Is that normal for your life? Like, Breathing and eating, normal. Reading the Bible. I mean, you know you're at a Bible church, right? It's an important thing for us to understand what the Bible says, and the way to do that is to read it. And we, we should be encouraged, all of us, if, if you've fallen back, friends, Jesus still loves you, but keep on persevering, grab a friend, Text a friend, long distance, six feet away, help you to encourage you to read the Bible. We need to read it and to study it and to search it and to pray over it and to memorize it diligently, persevering through it, unwavering, holding on to it. And that we would be so thoroughly acquainted with the Word of God that its words and its sentences hide in our memories and our hearts and that they stand ready when we're tempted to doubt the goodness and the greatness of our God. If we're not in the Word, friends, we will fail in our temptations. 
Paul says in Ephesians 6, as he's walking down the spiritual battle, he says, in all these circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then he says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Why would you ever go to war without a sword? We need the word. We should be people of the word. I'll turn back to Luke. One last verse here, verse 13. And the devil, and when the devil had ended his every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He'll be back. There'll be other opportunities for him to come and to tempt. You know, the real temptations come as offers to rise up, not fall. See, the devil didn't come to the garden to Adam and Eve and say, do you wish to be like the devil? He didn't say that, right? He says, do you wish to be like God? There's never offers of debauchery and destruction or ruin. No, those are a small print at the bottom of the temptation. It's not offered, temptation is not offered by Satan dressed in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns on his head. Temptation is so deceptively attractive and can come even from your closest friends. Remember, it wasn't a malicious opponent, but a close friend that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. See, was subtly, Satan comes to tempt us away from trusting God. We can even be tempted in this passage to believe that Jesus is just an example for life. And you too can have victory over the devil. But that's not what this passage is saying. These 13 verses in Luke 4 show us that Jesus is the only one who defeated Satan and eventually sin, and he invites us into victory, his victory, by faith alone. And you and I will, will never perfectly overcome temptation but Jesus has, and we can trust in him. Jesus didn't stand in the wilderness as our example. He stands as our Savior. He is the Son of God, the new Adam, the new Israel, our great high priest. He went into the wilderness to be tempted in our place because we couldn't do it. And we see in the Scriptures time and again Humans failing to meet the standard. Humans are unable to stand on their own. And we should take away from the scripture and from the sermon is that we need to trust in God. We need to look to Jesus. I wonder, though, what a sermon like this about Jesus' temptation means to you that are here that aren't a Christian. You're a non-Christian. Perhaps you've logged on to watch this morning. If you're not a Christian, every time you succumb to temptation, it's just Satan's calling card on your life. He's simply jerking your chain. He's reminding you whose slave you are. And you need to understand that power and freedom from sin can never be attained by your own effort. 
or by your own ideals or philosophy or morality or even by your own death. You will be tied to your sin even if you die because freedom from sin can only be won by Jesus Christ and that's why he came. It's only because Jesus stood firm in obedience and faithfulness to the Father that he was able to offer a perfect sacrifice on the cross and to save us from our sins. Our greatest need in this world wasn't a political party or stability. It's not an economic prosperity or educational advancements or good health or even cutting-edge entertainment. And that's why God didn't send a politician. He didn't send an economist or a teacher or a physician or artist. Rather, he knew our greatest problem was our sin and rebellion and estrangement from him. And so he sent a rescuer. He sent Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. So friend, if you're here and if you've never trusted in Christ, turn to him in faith this morning. And to my Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling, who maybe have failed more times than you can count. Remember the verse I read at the beginning, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. we have a friend right now who knows exactly what our testing feels like. And he sits close to us. He's not distant. Solidarity. And our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we truly are. And as we sink further into pain, we we tend to sink further into isolation. And the Bible here corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what Jesus himself shares in. Brother, sister, Christian, you're never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Jesus is not aloof in the midst of your troubles. He's there. J.C. Ryle encourages us, he says, let all true Christians take comfort in the thought that we have a friend in heaven who can be touched with the feeling of their infirmities when they pour out their hearts before the throne of grace and groan under the burden that daily harasses them, there is one making intercession who knows their sorrows. Let us take courage. The Lord Jesus is not an austere man. He knows what we mean when we complain of temptation and is both able and willing to give us help. Jesus is there for us, friends. And we've all been tempted to doubt the goodness of God's fatherly care and and to put our physical desires ahead of our obedience to God. We've all all been tempted to seek earthly glory and gain rather than to suffer, be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. We've all had the temptation to go and get what we think we deserve any way we can get it. 
We've been tempted to put God to the test. Will God really protect us? Does God really love us? Will he really care for our needs? See, Jesus doesn't test God to see if he can be trusted. He knows he can be trusted. Friends, do we tend to live by sight rather than by faith? If life is good, then God is good. But if life is bad, then God is bad. Is that your way of thinking? That's not what the Bible teaches. Our Lord didn't endure temptation so that we would have a model to follow. He did this so that we would have mercy when we're failing. And our best strategies in times of temptation is to run to Jesus. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our high priest who, who prays and intercedes for us. And our victory as Christians only comes through the victory of Jesus Christ. If we had to face the devil without the saving work of Jesus Christ, we would fail like Adam. And every other person listed after him. Instead, we should trust in Christ alone. And we're going to sing of this as we end. And we've sang this song hundreds of times. You guys can come up as you're leading. But I want you, as we sing this song in Christ alone, to, to think of these words. Because in this song, it's so clearly we're rejoicing in the gospel. He's, him is 20 years old, this hymn. I don't know if you know that. 20 years we've been singing this. And the hymn writers just write this to walk us through the gospel, to remember the gospel. And we're going to sing about what Christ has done and what that means for us. And so if you're, you're here and you're constantly trying to put your hopes in how well you're doing, then you will always walk away disappointed. Look to Christ. Remember what he has done. Sing of that and what Christ has done.